had a scary moment last week. Claire went to the grocery store and bought something that um, caused me to have some chilling flashbacks from my past. Before we had kids, I would regularly partake in Chewy Chips Ahoy cookies. And, and so, there's something about those cookies that makes me lose all control. It was customary before we had kids, I would... I would eat a pack in two days, maybe even a day. You say, wait, why would you eat a whole pack of cookies in you know, one day? The answer, because I wanted to. Because I wanted to. Now, we understand, don't we, that what we want is not always necessarily what's best. As a matter of fact, sometimes what we want is directly antithetical to what God wants. And when we choose what we want over what God wants, we are headed towards some very dangerous territory. I want to talk to you this morning about the sin of self-indulgence. The sin of self-indulgence from 1 Samuel chapter 15. So turn there with me as we continue our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 10. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. First Samuel 15, verse 10, the Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen, which I hear. Let's pray together. Father, help us to understand today the devastating effects of disobedience. Lord, I pray that you would use your word today, applied to our hearts by the Spirit of God, to break us out of some cycles some destructive cycles, some sinful cycles, some cycles of unrepentance. Father, set us free by your grace and power that we might live fully for your glory. And we'll thank you for that grace. Lord, it's good to be here today. Your word says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And Lord, we are saying today, it is good to be saved. It is good to know you. It's good to call you Father. And we just want you to, to just move in our midst for your fame and your renown. Establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Israel wanted a king. And even though this was not what was best for the people of Israel, God gave them what they wanted which would teach them some very 
important and valuable lessons. It teaches us some very important and valuable lessons. And God named the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. And Samuel, God's spokesperson, gathered all of Israel together and said, Listen, your desire for a king was wrong. Your desire to, to want to be like the nations around you and your desire to cast off the authority of God was wrong. But I've got some news for you. If you will obey God, if you'll listen to his voice, God will bless you. But if you do not listen to God's voice, if you disobey God, you will be swept away. That's found in chapter 12. Well, we see in the next three chapters that Saul did not heed this warning. The, the next three chapters, 13, 14, and 15, feature three sinful decisions from Saul. In chapter 13, we see him getting impatient, not waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice to God. He takes matters into his own hands, even though he was not a priest. We call this uh, the sin of self-dependence. In chapter 14, which we studied last week, we saw, make, uh, saw, we saw Saul make a foolish vow because of his own inflated sense of self-importance. He said, no one eat a thing until I'm avenged on my enemies. And the battle was not completed because the men did not have the strength to finish the battle. And this week we see what I'm calling the sin of self-indulgence. Direct disobedience to God because Saul wanted something that God did not want Saul to have. And what Saul wanted was more important than what God wanted. So what I want to do is I want to just kind of walk through this story under five different headings, five aspects that help us to understand the seriousness of disobedience. So first of all, I want you to see the command. We've got to understand this command to understand the full import of the rest of the chapter. Look what it says in chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, for he, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God makes a very clear command to Saul. I want you to decimate the Amalekite nation. I want you to utterly destroy them. This was a very clear command. And just a reminder that when God gives us commands, His commands are always clear. When we disobey God, it's not because of a lack of clarity on God's part. God speaks clearly, and we have to deal with what He says, either obey or disobey. And God spoke clearly, utterly annihilate the Amalekites, and Saul heard this message, but Saul, we'll see later, disobeyed this very clear command. Now, before we go to the second heading, I just want to spend a few moments dealing with this question that comes from the text. What are we to make of God's command to utterly destroy the Amalekites? I mean, how do we to understand this? Because look what it says there in verse 3. It's, it, it's, it's pretty striking language. Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I mean, we're talking about utter annihilation here. And, and we hear that, and it's shocking to our modern-day sensibilities and understandings. And we say, how are we to understand that passage, the harshness of that command from God to Saul? Well, to understand this, we need to, we need to take into consideration 
uh, four different things. First of all, we need to understand their wickedness, the wickedness, the wickedness of the Amalekites. There in verse 2 he says, the Lord of hosts says, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Now if you remember over in Exodus chapter 17, Joshua leads the Israelites into a battle. And Moses goes on uh, onto the top of a mountain, and he raises his hands in this posture of dependence and prayer. And as long as his hands were raised, Israel prevailed in the battle. But when Moses' hands got tired, they began to droop. Israel began to lose the battle. So Aaron and Hur came, and they sat Moses down on a rock, and they got on either side of him. They held up his hands in this posture of prayer and dependence, and as, and as his hands were up, Israel won the battle. They know who they were fighting? They were fighting the Amalekites. Now, at the end of that chapter 17, the Lord says, I'm going to blot out the Amalekites for coming against my people. God had delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage and slavery. They were headed towards the promised land, and the Amalekites came and attacked. As a matter of fact, just to show you a little bit about their wickedness, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25. You get a little more information as to God's displeasure with the Amalekites. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore... It shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. The Lord was infuriated by Amalek's wickedness. They attacked the rear guard of Israel. They attacked the stragglers, the wounded, the sick, the, the women, the, the children. They, they attacked the weak. God says, because of their attack against God's people, I will blot out the memory of Amalek. I will destroy them. And this command found in 1 Samuel 15 is God carrying out his promise. God coming through saying, I will destroy the Amalekites. So we need to understand the wickedness of the Amalekites. These folks were ungodly. They were pagan worshipers. They did not love the Lord. They hated God and hated his people. And the consequences for that are serious. So we need to understand their wickedness. Secondly, we need to understand God's patience. God's patience. Turn back to 1 Samuel 15 with me. 1 Samuel 15. There was about 300 years that passed from... The time when God said, I will blot out the Amalekites to the time when they are uh, attacked by Saul and the people of Israel. God gave them over 300 years to repent, but they did not repent. There's no indication that the Amalekites turned back to God, that, or they turned to God at all. As a matter of fact, look what it says in verse 18 of 1 Samuel 15. The Lord sent you on a mission. This is Samuel talking to Saul. And said, go and utterly destroy the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Look what it says in verse 33. Verse 33, Samuel said, this is to Agag, the king of the Amalekites, Samuel said to him, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. What a striking verse. But 
But Samuel carries out God's judgment against the king of the Amalekites because he says, you were the one that made women childless. The Amalekites were a wicked, fierce, ungodly people, and God was coming against them in devastating judgments. You need to understand their wickedness and God's patience, 300 years and no sign of repentance. But then you need to understand God's kindness to the Kenites. There's a a, a juxtaposition in the text to help us understand what the Lord's all about. Look what it says in verse 4, 1 Samuel 15. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, now watch this, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, for that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Now what's happening here? Why does Saul... Give the Kenites a pass. Before we attack, get out of town so that you don't suffer any of the judgment from God's hand. Why does Saul let the Kenites go? Well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites attack, and and God gives the Israelites a victory over the Amalekites. In chapter 18, a man named Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, comes to Moses. And he noticed that Moses is burdened with the, the workload of judging between all the people. So he helps Moses to understand how you can divide the people up into groups and set um, faithful men over the different groups to help you in your leadership of the nation of Israel. And, and Jethro worships the Lord there with Moses. You know who the Kenites are? The Kenites are descendants of Jethro. They're descendants of a man that feared God, that worshipped God, that blessed God's people. So you see, the, you see the contrast here? The Amalekites attacked God's people, came against God's people, and they were to be judged. The Kenites, they were friends of God's people, worshipers of God. They were delivered from judgment. You see the difference there? See, what we see happening here is we see God keeping his word that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, talking about the Hebrews, the Israelite people. And he says, the ones that, that bless you, I will bless But those who curse you, I will curse. And that's exactly what we have happening here in the text. God blessing the Kenites because they were friends to God's people. And God cursing the Amalekites because they were enemies of God's people. Let me just say parenthetically. I hope that our nation is always a friend to God's people. Always a friend to Israel. Because the Bible says, blessed are those that bless Israel and cursed are those that curse Israel. May we always stand as friends and allies of God's people. That's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the, the, the keeping of the promise that God made to Abraham. Which leads us to this conclusion. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing. We, we should not trifle with God. God offers grace and salvation and mercy and love but if we spurn God's salvation if we spurn God himself we will fall under the heavy hand of his judgment and that is serious business it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God it's interesting people read a passage like 1 Samuel 15 and they're just shocked and abhorred wipe out the entire nation And yet, we put pictures of Noah's Ark in our kids' nurseries. What was Noah's Ark? God destroyed everyone except Noah's family. 
we see that you do not trifle with God. Run to His salvation. Listen to His word. Do not spurn Him. Embrace Christ as your Savior because it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. We should learn that lesson from the Amalekites. And so we see the command. Saul, lead the Israelites to destroy Amalek. Now here's the second part of this text I want you to see. We see disobedience. God makes a command, but then there's complete disobedience from Saul. Look what it says in verse 7. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the king, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. What, what do we see happening here? We see Saul falling short of total obedience. God said, I want you to kill everyone and everything, but first of all, Saul spares Agag's life, the king. Th- this was customary in this day and time, by the way. If you were a king, you were part of the club. You may be a king of another nation, but you're part of the king club. There's only a few kings around. And so when I attack your people, I may kill all your people, but I'm going I'm to let you stay alive. You're in the club. He's disobeying God. You see, what we need to learn from this is, is that partial obedience is complete disobedience. He started off well. I mean, he, he, he was obeying God's command. He was attacking the people. But then when he got Agag, he spared his life. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. We like to think, well, I'm doing some things right or some things well, but but I'm falling short in this area. Listen, if you're falling short in some areas, you're disobedient, right? Let's call it what it is. You're, You're disobedient to what God has said. And you see, our disobedience is driven by self indulgence. Look what it says there in verse 9. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good. Why did Saul keep all of this livestock? Look look at me. Because he wanted to. He wanted to. It's what he wanted. And what he wanted was more important than what God commanded. And sin occurs when we think that what we want is more important than what God wants. That's what sin is, right? Sin is when what you want to do is more important than what God wants you to do. And it's ultimately a lack of trust that what God wants you to do is what's best. Disobedience. God told him to destroy the Amalekites. He did not finish the job because of his indulgence. He wanted to keep some things for himself. Now, third, we see a confrontation. A confrontation. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. He has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. That's telling, isn't it? Saul set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? If you've carried out the command of the Lord, then there should not be this Amalekite livestock in your possession. And then look what happens in verse 20. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And 
brought, have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoils, sheep, and oxen, choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, here's the confrontation, verse 22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The confrontation begins with a question. A question. Does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? In other words, what does your religious act mean when your life is being lived out in clear disobedience to God? A question. Then there's a principle that Samuel shares. Look in verse 22. Here's the principle. Behold. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. It's better to obey God than go through the motions of religious ritual. That's what he's saying there. It's a principle. And then there's a comparison. And this is where it gets really, really interesting and convicting. He says in verse 23, here's the principle. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, witchcraft. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Unless you think, Saul, that your sin wasn't that big of a deal, your rebellion, your disobedience was like witchcraft and idolatry. It's a big deal. Now, here's the game that we like to play with God. We like to, we like to come up with categories for our sin. And here's the problem with that. When we begin to categorize sin, it always comes out in our favor. In other words, the things I struggle with, not that big a deal, right? But oh, so-and-so over there, man, what a sinner. What a wicked, vile dude, because look what he's doing. We play this game where we categorize and compartmentalize sin, and, and it always ends up making us feel good about ourselves because our sin's not that big of a deal. Samuel here shares this principle. Disobedience is like witchcraft. That's pretty serious, right? Rebellion is like idolatry. It's a big deal. Our sin is a big deal. Our sin is very serious. And that's what he's trying to drive home into Saul's life. He makes this comparison. And so our misleading statement last week wasn't just a little white lie. Our misleading statement last week was like witchcraft. My failure to read God's word last week because I was busy was not just a busy lifestyle. It was idolatry. Right? My prayerlessness last week was not just, you know, I I just forgot to pray. My prayerlessness last week was like idolatry. Serious in God's eyes. So there's this comparison. And then the last part of this confrontation is a pronouncement of judgment. Look in verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Here's the judgment. You're not going to be the king anymore. God's going to take the kingdom from you, Saul, and give it to a man after his own heart. Saw that in chapter 13. We'll see who that man is next week in chapter 16. Hope you'll be here for that. But he pronounces judgment over Saul's life. Now, this confrontation between Samuel and Saul is a good thing. Saul, Samuel speaking truth into Saul's life is a good thing. I believe that you and I should welcome godly confrontation into our lives. We should welcome people 
that, that we can trust people that love us and people that love Jesus to be able to speak truth into our lives. To, to, if they see something that's gone awry, if they see us beginning to go down the wrong path, we need folks in our lives that can say, hey, you're going down the wrong path. Warning. Don't do that. Let me help you go in the right direction. Confrontation is not comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. But if it saves us from a decision that will lead to our destruction, I think it's a good thing. We should welcome godly confrontation into our lives. And one of the problems in the American church today is we have closed everyone out of our lives so that no one can speak into our lives and there's no accountability anymore. And we do whatever we want to do, live however we want to live, and no one can say anything. If they do, they're off our list. Right? We should welcome and invite godly confrontation. It's a, it's a good thing. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. Galatians, 2, uh, Galatians 6 says, if you, if you find someone straying, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. We need that godly confrontation in our lives. It's like surgery. Surgery may be, may be painful and undesirable, but it may be necessi- necessary for your long-term health. And confrontation may be, may be painful, but it may be necessary for your long-term spiritual health. So confrontation can be an instrument God uses in your life. And God confronted Samuel with some truth. But then fourth, we see superficial repentance. There's been a command, disobedience, confrontation. But then we see Saul go through a sham of repentance. It's it's superficial. It's not real. Look what happens in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. So Saul's lips speak repentance. I've sinned. I've messed up. So Wade, why do you think his repentance is superficial? Why do you think it's not the real deal? Let me give you some, some characteristics of superficial repentance that come from this text. First of all, superficial repentance doesn't recognize the seriousness of sin. Superficial repentance does not recognize the seriousness of sin. Look back in verse 13. Samuel came up to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Had he? No. Samuel says, Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep? The lowing of cattle. See, to Saul, his his falling short of total obedience was not that big of a deal. I did a lot. And sure, I kept some cattle for myself. And sure, I, I let Agag live. But no big deal. Right? No big deal. He did not take his sin seriously. And, and we know, listen to me, we know that we are repenting in a superficial way when we think our sin is not that big of a deal. It's one of the sure signs that you're not serious about getting right with God. Secondly, superficial repentance blames others. Superficial repentance blames others. Look in verse 15. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. In other words, he blames the folks. They're the ones that kept the animals. I was powerless to do anything about it. I'm just the king. (laughs) It's their fault. Look what he says in verse 24. I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord your words. Because I feared the people and listened to their voice. It's their fault. You see, superficial repentance... Always find someone else to blame for your sin. 
If you find yourself blaming others for your sin, you're not really living in true repentance. Superficial repentance blames others. Third, superficial repentance worries about what others think more than what God thinks. Wait, how do I know if I'm if I'm superficially repenting, if you are more worried about others than about what God thinks about your life, you're being superficial. Look what happens in verse 24. I've sinned. I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. What happens here is almost comical if it wasn't so sad. Okay, okay, I sinned. Now, will you go back with me so the people know that God approves my, my reign? No, I'm not going back with you. Samuel, wait! Rope tears off, and Samuel says, The Lord has torn the kingdom away from you. Okay, I'm sorry. Will you come back with me, please? He doesn't seem to be broken at all about God's judgment on his life, about the depth of his sin. He just is worried about keeping up appearances. Samuel, go back with me. So the people can see you with me. Superficial repentance worries about what others think more than what God thinks. The question is, what does God think about my sin and my disobedience? Fourth, superficial repentance carries on with religious ritual while ignoring issues of sin. Look in verse, verse 30. He said, I have sinned and... Pl- but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Let him go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel goes back with him. He went back following Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Now notice what happens here. Saul goes back to worship, and Agag's still alive. In other words, he wasn't, he wasn't intent on being obedient to God's command, right? He goes to a worship service and does not obey. Samuel has to go and take care of Agag. Isn't it interesting how we can have deep-seated issues of sin in our life that we just ignore while we go through the motions of religion? And you know that your repentance is superficial when you're just going through the motions of religious ritual while not dealing with issues in your life. Did you know it's possible to come to church, to smile, to shake hands, to slap backs, to sing songs, to pray prayers, to go to connect group, and have deep issues of sin in your life that you're not willing to address? It's possible to go through the motions and everybody thinks you're doing great, while you have vast areas of disobedience in your life. It's possible. It happens all the time. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord says, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. The ESV study Bible says about that verse, 
outwardly proper worship offends God if it is a way of evading Him at a deeper level. My question is, are you here today to do business with God? I mean, do you really want God to change the trajectory of your life? Do you really want God to, to transform you, to make you more like Jesus? Are you ready for God to search you and, and, and surface areas in your life that need to be dealt with? Or are you just going through the motions? Superficial repentance is very good at going through the motions. Or just ignoring vast issues of sin. So here's the question. What does real repentance look like? I mean, wait, I, I don't want to be like Saul. I don't want to superficially repent. I, I, what does real repentance look like? Well, I've given you a sentence there with some accompanying verses. I'm just going to read it through. Real repentance occurs when we confess and forsake our sins with godly sorrow and then return to Him. That's real repentance. We confess and forsake our sins with godly sorrow and then return to Him. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now that word confess in 1 John 1 in the original Greek language is an interesting word. It's the word homologeo. It means to say the same thing about. So what John is saying is that confession is when we say the same thing about our sin that God says. When we look at our sin the same way God looks at our sin. Not making excuses, not blaming others, but Lord, I have sinned against you. It was wrong, and I've done it, and I confess it. I want you to cleanse my heart. That's confession. And then it says in your notes, we confess and forsake our sins. How many of you have ever confessed a sin knowing in your heart that you're going to do it again? Raise your hand. Ever done that? And you even know when you're going to do it again. Uh, turn to Proverbs 28 with me very quickly. Proverbs 28, 13. Proverbs 28, 13. The Bible says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and, and forsakes them will find compassion. So God doesn't want you to just say, okay, I've sinned and I'm sorry. God wants you to say, I'm sorry, I've sinned, and then turn from that sin and leave it behind. He wants you to forsake it. He wants you to stop doing it. You say, God, I'm sorry, I've blown it. I don't want to do it anymore. God, help me change my life. Help me to build things into my life that will keep me from doing that sin again. That's real repentance. I'm not just giving lip service to being sorry. I'm really asking you to change things in my life so that I can leave this sin behind. Real repentance occurs when we confess and forsake our sins with godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 says that, that godly sorrow leads to repentance, and, and then we return to him. Revelation 2 talks about leaving your first love. John writes to the church at Ephesus, repent of, of leaving your first love, and the implication is return to your first love. You see, repentance is a U-turn. You're, you're going one way. You say, I don't want to go this way anymore. I'm going to turn. What's going to happen next? When you turn, when you confess and forsake, that's when you run to Jesus. Amen? That's when you reprioritize your life around Jesus Christ. You return to him. You love him. You walk with him. You talk with him. That's real repentance. I read a story this past week about a lady named Loretta Lacey of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. 
She was heading to Racine, Wisconsin for her granddaughter's dance recital. And on her way, she received four speeding tickets. The first time, she was pulled over going 112 miles per hour. The second time, she was going 99 miles per hour, so she's getting a little slower. Third time, she's going 88, and the fourth time, she was going 88. Four speeding tickets. Now, I can almost imagine her talking to the law enforcement officer, can't you? Yeah, I'm sorry. She might have even said, won't happen again. Right? Four speeding tickets. I would call that superficial repentance. She did not forsake her speeding. And sometimes our lives can look just like that. Oops, God, I'm sorry. Oops, God, I'm sorry. Oops, God, I'm sorry. But we just rush headlong into doing what we were doing before. We don't confess and forsake. And then return to Him. And so we see in this text the sad picture of superficial repentance. Fifth and last, there are some devastating effects. When you have cycles of sin in your life that you do not deal with, when you have disobedience in your life that you do not, do not repent of, it brings some devastating effects into your life. First of all, we see that unrepentant sin causes a loss of opportunity. Back in 1 Samuel, Samuel says to Saul, the, the, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. You're not the king anymore. He lost his opportunity to serve the Lord as king of Israel. He lost his opportunity of privilege. Secondly, unrepentant sin causes a loss of intimacy with God. Look back in 1 Samuel 15, verse 34. It says, Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to the house of Gibeah, uh, at, of Saul. And Samuel, this is very interesting, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul. Now, now think about this. Samuel is Saul's mouthpiece to Saul. So if Samuel's not around Saul anymore, that means God's not speaking to Saul. Right? No communication, no guidance from God. Because of his disobedience and his superficial repentance, he had lost his intimacy, his closeness with the God of the universe. And when we sin and we don't deal with our sin, it affects our closeness to God. If you're God's child... If you're truly born again, if you're saved, nothing can break your relationship with God. Once he's your father, he's always your father. Amen? You're a child of God. You'll always be a child of God. But even as a child of God, our sin and superficial repentance can cause a, a, a lack of intimacy with the Father. It can affect our closeness with the Father. And it could be that Someone in this room, many someones in this room are far from God right now. You're not close to him because you have issues in your life you have not dealt with. And then third, unrepentant sin causes God to be grieved. Look what it says in verse 35, the last part of that verse. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Wow. Did God know this was going to happen? Absolutely. God knows the end from the beginning. God knows everything. He's omniscient. He knew this was going to happen, but he still... Let things play out for his plans, his purposes. He knew Saul was going to make these foolish decisions. And yet, as Saul makes these decisions and chooses to disobey God and chooses to live in superficial repentance, God is grieved over Saul's choices. Everybody look at me for a moment. I want you to understand that our lives can grieve God. They can. Ephesians 4.30. The Bible says, 
do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Pretty clear, isn't it? Talking to Christians in Ephesus. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It is possible to grieve God, our Father, who saved us, who loves us, who wants nothing but the best for our lives. It's possible to grieve Him and disappoint Him and let Him down if we live in these cycles of sin and superficial repentance. Devastating effects. So here's a concluding thought. I want you to turn to Romans 7 with me. You say, Wade, I've got some cycles of sin in my life. Some things that just keep on happening. Maybe it's the way that you treat other people. Maybe it's things you view on your screen of your computer. Maybe it's a desire for prominence and popularity. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's a love of money. But you've got some stuff in your life that are just cycles of disobedience. And you've not truly dealt with them. So wait, how can I break free of these cycles? Well, can I just encourage you with this? Paul dealt with cycles of disobedience. Look what it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Right before this, he says, hey, there's some things I want to do and I don't do them. Some things I don't want to do and I do them. And he says in verse 21, I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He says, I, I, I'm stuck in some cycles of disobedience. That's what he's saying here. Look what he says next. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death? Everybody look at me for a moment. If you're stuck in some cycles of disobedience, the question is not what you need to do. The question is who's going to rescue you? Who is going to set me free? And look what he says next. Thanks be to God through Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer to break you out of those cycles of disobedience and set you on the right path. So the answer to your disobedience and your superficial repentance is to, is to fix your eyes upon Jesus, to walk with him and talk with him and follow him and let him have his way in your life, to center your life around him. And he, by his power and by his grace, he will break you out of those ungodly cycles. But it will not happen apart from Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So stop trying to think, what am I going to do? And, and fix your eyes upon Jesus. Trust Him and obey Him, and He will do for you what you need. Let's don't be like Saul. Doing what we want because that's what we want. And then stuck in these, these patterns of superficial repentance. Let's trust and obey and fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He is our only hope.